Welcome to the Cosmopolicast. Hi everyone, I'm Mo, your host. And we're super pleased today because we've got two distinguished guests right here with us who have joined us. Adam Garfinkel, member of the editorial board of American Purpose, founding editor of The American Interest, distinguished fellow of the S. Rajanatnam School of International Studies at Niyang Technical University. And then we've also got Henry Hill, a member of the American policy community who occasionally works on China affairs. Henry, I wanted to ask you a question. I know that you're using a pseudonym today. Can you tell us why? Why are you doing that? Well, well, well first of all, of course, Henry Hill uh, is, is actually the name of the fellow in uh, Goodfellas, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. So I'm seizing the opportunity to bask in that reflective glory with this particular pseudonym. But the proximate reason I'm using a pseudonym here, because of course, we're discussing China-related affairs and the atmosphere around China and things Chinese has changed dramatically uh, in the Xi era, particularly over the past, uh, I'd say, half decade. What I do know uh, firsthand is uh, observations, China since 2016. And I am also very privileged to be an adoptive father of Chinese children. And they are the reason that I'm using a pseudonym now on this Cosmopolitan Globalist podcast. It, there was a time not too long in the past where uh, one, whether one was a journalist or a scholar or a business person, could operate with reasonable assurance uh, within the People's Republic of China and believe that there, was no, there would be no consequences to your family uh, or to your loved ones. That time has passed. China under Xi has uh, become uh, markedly more authoritarian. And that, and that authoritarianism has reached down into personal lives in some horrific ways. We're all familiar with the ongoing genocide in Xinjiang, for one example. Uh, other examples, though, include uh, the Chinese state seizing American citizen uh, Chinese children, preventing them from leaving China in efforts to coerce their parents, usually U.S.-based, to return to China so they can face prosecution, persecution, uh, the cases vary. We have also seen targeting of Canadian citizens, apparently on political motivations. We have seen harassment of Western family members in China. My fear is that uh, by going on record, uh, and I admit this is, is, uh, this is cowardly in a sense, uh, but I freely admit to being a coward where my children are concerned, my children will want to return to China someday. Very probable. Uh, and if they do, uh, and if Xi Jinping uh, and the current incarnation of the Chinese Communist Party is still in place, I don't want them to suffer consequences for things that I will say now. It is regrettable, but it is effective. They have curbed my behavior, me, a citizen of the United States, and that's the era in which we live. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Henry, for your personal moving comments. Uh, through the press, you know, we know, as you've just said about the authoritarian nature of the regime itself, it's another thing, though, to hear about its direct impact on someone's life and their, you know, and their family, their kids. Thank you for explaining that. Now, Henry's comments brings us to our main discussion today, which will touch on the model of regime you know, that China is trying to export and is exporting across the world, and on China's real strength and ambitions. And to do that, I'd like to turn also to Adam and Vivek's exchange of ideas. Now, from your exchanges and also some excerpts from various articles published from a Chinese perspective, and those were in The Cosmopolitan Globalist, we get a picture of a very strong China in terms of economic strength and also diplomatic penetration. We also gather the importance 
of so many players like India and Pakistan, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. What we'll try to achieve today is to give a realistic picture of what options are open to dealing with China as a growing superpower. Let me turn to Vivek. Vivek, are we too late? Is China on its way to being the dominant force? And the U.S. has very little chance to change any of that. Is that your position? Yes, indeed. I do believe that. And I'm quite convinced that it's the economics that actually drives China's position in Southeast Asia or anywhere across Asia. They've got enough in this for economic activity to make sure that they could be a hugely, hugely disruptive force. If I could respond a little bit to that, I used to um, until until comparatively recently, I guess the past eighteen months or so, uh, I was I was very much in accord with the idea that the Communist Party rule in China had had transformed itself and metamorphosized into much more of a traditionalist Chinese restorationist project with the aim of effectively uh, recreating, you know. The Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom, at sort of the center of the world. So you could understand Chinese moves from kind of a geostrategic standpoint as being an effort to recreate that world order, and that is all still there. But I, I have moved away from the strictly cultural and strictly economic explanation for Chinese actions. There's actually a really, really good article that I would urge listeners to look up called "Engineers of the Soul: Its Ideology in Xi Jinping's China" by an Australian gentleman who's a speechwriter and analysis named uh, John Garneau. Uh, this came out in 2019, uh, early 2019, and, uh, and it's a long speech. You can look it up, Engineers of the Soul, which talks about the reality that Xi Jinping's party really is a legitimately uh, Marxist, as classically understood, and, uh, and, and Leninist and Maoist uh, party still at its core uh, that really does operate according to ideological dictates. So it's not an either or, it is probably the reality that China is operating according to economic interest, the intersection with kind of classical national interests, which would exist mm-hmm. with any Chinese regime, but also as, as, as a real, live, legit, ideologically motivated communist party. So, so I would keep that in mind, that uh, it's not the 1914-ish scenario, it's something um, very current. Henry, understanding the thinking underpinning the regime is extremely important. It's the key, really. I'm sure that we can expand okay, on this aspect even a little later as we're going forward also with Adam. Adam... I think I read in what you had written that instead you don't believe, is that true, that we're lacking in imagination and underestimating perhaps U.S. strength to counter the Chinese? Would you like to comment on that? I'd like to comment on a couple of things that have been said since I haven't said anything. First of all, what Henry Hill said about the change in China over the past several years, I'd like to just underscore how dramatic really it has been and how that has affected American thinking. China under Xi Jinping is not China under Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping or Deng Xiaoping. It is a neo-totalitarian enterprise right now. If you were going to use a, a limping historical metaphor, and they all limp, this would be the Soviet Union in the 30s when Stalin was still trying to create the unitary state, the unitary Soviet state by murdering basically anybody he didn't like. And we're seeing that now in China. And the trajectory is, although it's with Chinese characteristics, as they say, it follows along the Leninist model, totalitarian model in in what was the Soviet Union. So we are dealing with a very different kind of China. Now, as for the motivations, what, what drives the Chinese, it seems to me that when you're talking about a national enterprise like China, that motivations are multi tiered. They always are, it seems to me. 
So yes, Vivek, the economic dimension is what is on a quotidian basis daily, what these people think about. And it's not very different from how the United States behaved in the 19th century. So when Americans, you know, accuse the Chinese of stealing things, ideas and stuff, well, you know, it's the old, it's a obviously different context, but it's the old industry, you know, maximum feasible autarky. That's what the United States sought to do in the 19th century. So despite its liberal roots, we had a very high tariff wall and we stole everything in sight. <laughs> and, and indeed we piggybacked with respect to China, we piggybacked on the imperialism of, of Europeans. That's why the British used to derisively refer to American behavior in China and in Asia as jackal imperialism, all right? We were never there for the kill, but we always showed up for the meal. It was despicable. But the Chinese are doing something very similar. It's a zero-sum, dog-eat-dog, uh, I'm going to get my pound of meat mentality. And that explains, you know, the economic dimension of what they do. But that's not all there is. That's not all there is. I don't agree that China is fundamentally ideological in a Marxist sense. I think that China is ideological in the civilizational sense. And I think it, I don't want to say that, I don't want to be rude, but it, it's an ethno-nationalist point of view. I mean, I don't want to say outright that it's racist, but let's just say it's race proud. And I think all of us have been to China at least once or twice. I've been there a couple of times. If you just walk around Shanghai, you walk, walk around Beijing, you walk around and just look around in the Han core of China, you do not see a multi multicultural society. You see Chinese people. You see people that who look like Han people. It isn't like going downtown in Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia or New York or Los Angeles, where you see people of all, you just don't see that. This is a very insular culture still in many ways. And I think that pretty much all forms of Asian communism, that includes Vietnamese communism, Cambodian communism, were really, especially in the Cambodian case, were really, Marxism was a foil for nationalism in all of those cases. Insofar as it was Marxist, it was very shallow in terms of its, of its uh, economic understanding. What this was really about was asserting the ethno-national identity of these peoples, the, these languages, against the humiliations and the oppression of European imperialism going back for a couple of hundred years. And I don't think the case in China is much different. I think what really drives the Chinese on a different level than economics is the sense of redressing the humiliation of the past 150 years. I think it is a psychologically revanchist regime, okay? I don't think it's Marxist in the classical European sense. I think it's Marxist in the Asian nationalist sense, but I do think it's revanchist. I do think it's dangerous. And what I worry about is an overreaction. What I really worry about is kind of a boomerang effect. For years and years and years, Americans interested in, in foreign policy and in China, though not necessarily experts in China, underreacted to the threat that China to, to Western principles, institutions, and role of the United States in the Pacific. Now I think we're, we're overreacting. And I think we're overreacting in a foolish way. One example of it is this insistence against all evidence and logic of calling the Sino-American rivalry these days a new Cold War, capital C, capital W. I think this is wrong. I think it's misleading. I think it's foolish. I think if you just stand back and just compare, you know, what made the Cold War, the Cold War, the Cold War, and then look at the US-Chinese rivalry, you see it doesn't match up on any level at all. And I really worry about people like Graham Allison talking about the Thucydides trap and persuading lesser minds that that means that there's inevitably going to be a hegemonic war between the United States and China. There might be, but there doesn't need to be. But I'm especially concerned that if you use the metaphor of the Cold War and you look how the Cold War ended with the collapse of the Soviet state, with its falling to its knees, right? If you understand China historically at all, if you think that 
that China is going to fall to its knees and collapse like the Soviet Union did. I don't know what world you're living in. All right. So you're talking about if you want to pick a cold war, pick a fight, call it a cold war with China and expect to win it. If the United States expects it to win it the way that it won the cold war with the Soviet Union. I just think that's very much not in the cards. Last thing I'll say, I don't think, Vivek, this is directed toward you. I don't think that Chinese economic growth at the kind of double digit levels that we've seen in, in recent years is likely to continue. I think there's a demographic problem we're all aware of. There's a middle income trap problem. There's crony capitalism. They can't deal with the SEOs in, a, in the same way. I mean, the history suggests that at some point they're going to hit a blockage economically and it's going to redound politically in one way or another that that's not easy to predict. And I also think if you look at the region, all right, everybody in the region, I mean, I was in Singapore for a year and I traveled a little bit before COVID. I was in Indonesia, I was in Cambodia, I talked to people in Vietnam. They're all having laundry problems about China. They want American power in their neighborhood. That's why there's an air base and a, a naval base that's not called a naval base in Singapore, right? There will be bandwagoning with the United States and the United States will remain a Pacific power because we have equities in the Pacific. So there's a natural balancing that will take place, it seems to me, on the strategic side. And that's what all the countries in Southeast Asia do. They hedge. They, they want to do business with China, but they think they can protect themselves in doing business with China because the United States will ultimately be there an extremist. They might be wrong about that because of the collapse of sort of the verve of American politics generally, but that's what they think. So there will be invitations for the United States to be in the region with power, uh, whether we avail ourselves of the invitations, that remains to be seen on the basis of our own politics. But China is pissing everybody off. China has negative soft power in Southeast Asia. And they come to a place and everybody pretty much starts to hate them pretty, pretty quick. So you know, the, old, the old thing about the ugly American, somebody ought to write a book in Chinese about the ugly Chinese because that's, that's a fact of life in, in, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia. So I don't lose a lot of sleep about the Chinese. What I worry about is basically misperceptions accumulating on both sides with, you know, the wolf warrior types in China, the hyper-nationalists in China, with people in this country that are sure there's going to be a war, but they don't know anything about the country. What I worry about is this kind of, in the case of the United States, the theologization of strategy again, now, seeing everything like a, a Manichaean passion play. I worry about these shards of nationalism getting out of control on both sides. I worry about lava flows of irrationality in Beijing and Washington driving us into a totally gratuitous and unnecessary conflict. Vivek, what do you have to say about this? I completely take Adam's points, but I'm just looking at it from where I'm positioned in India. And I take everything that he's saying, but my concern is still that China would like to be the numero uno superpower in Asia. And I also accept the points that you make about economics. It's not, it's no longer growing at 10%. It's now growing at something like 7% or thereabouts. But they lie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they've been lying for decades. We really don't know. They might have grown at 15 when they grew at 10. But here's the thing. Again, I, I really, I know it's not polite to say this these days, but it really is an ethno-linguistic phenomenon. It is a nationalist phenomenon, right? When it comes to, when the Chinese look at India, they see an Asian but alien civilization. And if you look at Southeast, very look at Southeast Asia, every single country in Southeast Asia, except Vietnam, is Indic in culture. Even the Philippines, uh, Vietnam is the only one that is cynic, and all the others are Indic. And the Vietnamese hate the Chinese more than anybody in the region, right? Which, which tells you something. 
I mean, I think the Chinese want to reclaim the middle, as Henry said, sort of the middle kingdom status. They want to rectify the humili humiliation of the you know, century and a half or two. For example, it's recent, I don't think there's a conventional ideological dimension to it is during the Cold War, both the Americans and the Russians, the Soviets, had an aspiration to create the moral political paternity of the world after their image of it. I don't think the Chinese have any kind of ambition like that. I mean, I, I, think, I think that the United States and China have inverted exceptionalisms. We think that we're better than everybody else, but we're better than everybody else, but you can be just like us, okay? The Chinese have a very, an inverted version of it. We're Chinese, we're better than everybody else, we're the central kingdom, but nobody can be like us. So I don't think they're evangelical. I think what they wanna do is control their core Han space and expand their Han space, which they've been doing for more than a thousand years, but I don't think they have aspirations to transform, for example, uh, social democracy in Western Europe into a, a sino-totalitarian model. I just don't see that. So they're dangerous, but they're dangerous in a different way. They're, da they're dangerous in an Asian way and in a civilizational way. I don't think that the, simply the existence of democracies far away from Chinese borders, I don't think they see that as a threat. Hmm. I don't think they really care about that. I don't think they have, I don't think they think in terms of global, ideological, moral ways. I just I'd like to hear what Henry that. has to say about this. Uh, you know, it's no, nothing is determinative, right? And so, and so, and so, in anything that I say that is is reductionist or posits a prime cause is going to be intrinsically wrong. I agree that the element of Han-specific ethnic nationalism is there, and it's always been there. Uh, it's easy to forget that the Kuomintang, uh, back when they were in charge, uh, you know, they conducted anti-Western pogroms in you know places like Nanjing back in their own heyday of the 1920s. So that's there. I, I'm not as persuaded that that's the driving thing. I mean, that, that that kind of kind of ethnic arrogance is present. I'm not really sure that it's any more present than it is in kind of your median, maybe East Central European country. So as an explanatory factor in Chinese behavior, uh, it, it only goes so far. And it also ignores, you know, with all respect, the extent to which China in general, and I mean, we're all overgeneralizing here, so let's acknowledge that. And I will continue to overgeneralize to make a contrary case. Uh, but China has done a remarkably decent job, especially in an East Asian context, of being an incorporator and a, um, an absorber of foreign influences throughout Chinese history. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that far in the past where people thought the Manchus uh, were a, you know, distinct and separate ethnicity, and they basically disappeared, uh, subsumed to the mass. The same thing happened with, you know, the, the Yuan dynasty uh, that came in with the Mongols. Uh, I remember in Guangzhou, where we had to spend quite a bit of time, all, all, all U.S. adoptions of Chinese children have to go through Guangzhou. Uh, and I was surprised, it was interesting, that there's a, uh, a fairly robust Muslim community there, and we'll see how long that lasts, given current events, but, but it exists. And then Shanghai, uh, one of my sons is from Shanghai, uh, very proud of that fact, but definitionally kind of the archetype of the international city, um, you know, founded as a concessionary uh, city, essentially, I mean, there, there was an old Chinese settlement there. And that is something that, that Shanghainese, uh, I was interested to find, uh, continue to take great pride in uh, sort of this openness of the world and this international aspect that continues. So it's, it's not all just Han, you know, Han ethnicity, Han restorationists, although again, that, that, that factor is present. On the values front, I guess a couple things. The, the new Cold War rhetoric, that does exist in the West. It exists a lot less in the Western policy community. Uh, it doesn't really have much purchase, uh, at least as far as I can see, in any corner of the American policy community. The, the, the major promulgator of that phrase in English is, is actually the Chinese. 
PRC organs like Global Times, for example, which if you look for the phrase new Cold War there, they're very heavily invested in it. And they're heavily invested in it uh, because they think it's a it's a discrediting concept that, you know, for propaganda purposes, they can come and say, you know, who wants a new Cold War? Well, nobody actually wants a new Cold War, uh, although, you know, I would argue that, that there is a sense to which the PRC is, is imposing it on us. The values question uh, is interesting, and this is one area where my opinion has changed uh, quite a bit. You know, again, you know, probably five years ago. Um, and, and by the way, just to put my cards on the table, you know, the, the, the two uh, visits that I had to China for both school and academic purposes uh, were essentially separated by about four years, no more like three years. But I was genuinely shocked at how things changed in the intervening three years. Uh, very, very different uh, change for the worse. Fun fact, uh, they're building air raid shelters in Guangzhou because it came across one. I'm, I'm at a loss to think of any other country that's currently in the business of constructing air raid shelters. So take that datum for what it's worth. The PRC internally, there's, a, the, there's an interesting leaked document, and I think it's called Document 9. I'll have to look it up. Uh, I, could be, I could be getting that wrong from, from 2013-ish that talks very explicitly about what the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, perceives as the values-based fight uh, emanating from the West and emanating from the United States. And, and, and they also have become very explicit really in the past 12 months. So it's a newish phenomenon and we should acknowledge it's instrumentalized uh, to a large extent. But really talking very openly about the need to construct an alternative world order based upon alternative values. And the immediate appeal for this is, of course, with their relationship with Russia. It's, China doesn't really have allies in a traditional sense because you know, Adam's right, nobody actually likes them. But, but they have partners of convenience, I think would be the... In fact, I was going to ask about Russia to see what kind yeah, of relationship well, well, they had. It's, it's a dependency relationship. I mean, the Russians are dependent upon the Chinese to, uh, you know, from a geostrategic standpoint to kind of keep their model alive. But, 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 but the Chinese have become much more explicit. Uh, and this is really accelerated with the COVID crisis and the bungling uh, that Western nations have exhibited in the face of the COVID crisis, that, that China has a superior model. So effectively, what you know, Tom Friedman, the column that he wrote over and over throughout the first decade of the 21st century, is to a remarkable extent the Chinese Communist Party's pitch to the other nations of the world. You know, we're not free, which they openly acknowledge. It's not possible in the Chinese context, according to them. Which is one reason that Taiwan is so ideologically threatening. But we are uh, managerially superior. And uh, I would not underestimate the appeal of that, especially uh, for those of us in, in Western democracies who, you know, yeah, we've, we, we've got the vote. But on the other hand, you know, our governance can't take your pick, keep the lights on, deal with the public health crisis, whatever. Uh, it means a lot. I, I, I would expect that, that ideological component in the 2020s is going to become much, much more pronounced. The Chinese, uh, you know, recognize one big thing, which is that there's a coalition assembling against them. There's the so-called quad that kind of found policy life under the Trump administration and the Biden team has really doubled down on. I agree with the second version of your ideas, and I agree with Adam. I don't think we're looking at something that's recognizably Marxist, Leninist, or Maoist. We're looking at a form of managerial competency, authoritarianism that will indeed be very appealing to many countries. I don't know whether this COVID-enhanced prestige they're enjoying now will continue, but certainly this is what people are going to be thinking. Democracy isn't working. It's clearly failed the West. And there's an attractive model here. I don't know whether China wants to capitalize on that. Do they actually want colonies? What are their- How about their... Taiwan? Yeah. What's the end game? I really think it is Leninist. I mean, I think Henry mentioned an, an article. I'd like to mention one too. Frank Lavin, who used to be the US ambassador in Singapore, wrote a terrific article in American Interest 
And basically what Frank is arguing is that a lot of the aggression you see in Chinese external behavior, whether it's with, with respect to India up in the mountains or whether it's with respect to Hong Kong or whether it's respect to maritime bullying in Scarborough, Scarborough Shoal in the South, South China Sea, that this is all an emanation of an attempt to create the, the unitary state. And that is a Leninist project. I mean, China, let's face it, in 1949, 1950, all through the early years, was too administratively weak to create a unitary state. Now, because of the technology, the technology enables China to imagine itself being like a social credit system. An amazing idea, horrifying idea to, to most of us, I'm sure. But that, that inspires them to think that they could really create an effective unitary state. And that is Leninist. It's not Marxist, but it's Leninist. No, I completely take that it's Leninist in terms of the institutions that China's developing and China's developed today. I completely take your points on Xi Jinping and his Stalinist, Leninist behavior within China and elsewhere. But if we were to take that lens away for a moment and look back into the history of China, the civilizational aspect that you spoke about is probably far more significant because the Leninist lens that you employ would be would work well within the civilizational ethos that China has. So it is a kind of ethno-nationalism, but I would disagree that it's Leninist in the sense that we saw in the 20th century. It's completely different. This is an amalgamation of China's civilizational ethos with what you might call the tools of Leninism, yeah. rather than just a Leninist approach. And to advanced what it's technology. Doing. Yeah, technology is one of the tools that can be most effectively employed to deliver what the center of the world kind of a civilizational approach. Well, the big difference in your perspectives from your writing is that Vivek doesn't think we can stop it. And you seem to think we can, Adam. Perhaps you could explore that a bit. I think we can. I don't know that we will. What we're seeing right now is the rise of a civilizational cleavage in the world that has never been before, at least insofar as the United States existed as an independent country. Because for as long as the United States has existed and has existed as a power, China was very weak and dependent and put upon by so many powers. We're now coming into an era in which the United States for the first time will have a genuine peer competitor on not a completely symmetrical global level, but getting pretty close. That's not Western. That's new for the United States. And you know, the United States has enjoyed pretty much perfect security. We haven't lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years as if on a chessboard cheek by jowl with other powers. We are in it for a long game. I mean, China's going to be there. We can't shape it. We can't make it go away. It's going to be there for a long time. And as long as the United States thinks of itself and actually is a great power with global scope, we are going to be bumping into the Chinese for a long, long time. Americans are not very good at long games. We want stuff to be over right away. We want to know, we want to know the answer. We want to know the result. We're very impetuous, very impatient kind of people. Uh, that's not the kind of attitude that you can possibly take and get anywhere when you're dealing with China. This is a long, long, long competition. It doesn't all have to be negative. There can be cooperative elements in it, and we ought to strive to find them and create a, you know, a frenemy sort of framework for the relationship going forward. And I think it's in both powers' interest to avoid disastrous hegemonic wars in which we blow up half the planet. 
That's a common interest, it seems to me. But this is this kind of, I have to call it old fashioned, you know, 19th and pre 19th century, but still modern diplomacy. This is not something the United States has a lot of practice with. So yes, we can do it. But as I already said, I'm worried that we won't, that we don't have the temperament, and especially that we don't have the domestic political confidence and stability that we need to understand how to play an effective long game with a rising great power. So I'm worried, Claire. I think the problem is inside the United States more than, more than it is, well, it's also inside China. We could, have, we could have plenty of allies if we wanted, you know, and it's wonderful that the Biden administration with Secretary Blinken and President Biden are announcing, you know, we're back. We're going to restore our alliances. Well, that's wonderful, but, but you have to know what you want the alliances to actually do. <laughs> You've got to put substance on these relationships. And I don't see any sign yet that uh, these guys in the new administration, none of whom at the top are Asia hands, that they know how Asians think and they understand what needs to actually be done as opposed to merely said. What I, needs to be done? Well, the quad's a good idea. That actually goes back to the, the, the administration that I was in, Bush 43 administration. That's an old idea. It's been filled out and that's a good thing. But we need to, we need to multi, multilateralize the approach to China. We need to shut up. We're always talking now about we don't say containing. We're avoiding, we're avoiding the word containing, which is nice. But everybody, the language in Washington now is about countering China. And this is coming from very high policy circles. There was even one guy who was in the, in the Trump administration who begged to be allowed to stay on because he wanted to be part of the fight. This is very, very unfortunate language. This is the opposite of what Theodore Roosevelt recommended. He recommended walking softly and carrying a big stick. We are running our mouths and the Navy can barely fight right now. This is exactly the opposite of what a wise power doing something for the long term would do. You actually have to take seriously what allies say, our Asian allies. For example, Japan. Japan is the most important ally the United States has in Asia. And since 1951, when you know the occupation ended and Japan was reintegrated into sort of the world community, Japan has always been the, the junior partner in the U.S.-Japanese relationship because the Cold War was a militarized diplomacy. and We had all the trump cards militarily. And the Japanese didn't have very many, all right? Those days are gone. The Japanese understand more about Asia than we do, than even our best analysts. And we need to make them unequal as a thought and policy leader. We need to sit with them and actually take seriously their understanding. And we don't do that because we're control freaks. We need to be better listeners to our friends in Asia. And we need to be a little bit more humble. And we need to think more long-term. You wanted to go through details and so forth about technology strategies, things like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. We'd be here forever, okay? The best way to do these things is to, is to selectively multilateralize them along lines of functionality. What did you say, along lines of functionality? I didn't understand yeah, for that. for example, we had to find the, the functional problem first, right? Like, say, the, the 5G thing. You first you define what you need to, uh, to achieve in the world, and then you go and find partners to build a coalition to get it done. It will always have a political spinoff if you're creating partnerships that are, in effect, balancing against Chinese power. So to me, the, the smart way to do it and the politically viable way to do it is to identify the problem you're trying to solve at the very practical level and then building the partnerships based on your definition of the problem. That's what I would do. Actually, I'm going to ask a question. If the Chinese were to attack Taiwan to take it, mm -hmm. what should be done at that point? Well, do we do the long game of what is Adam is talking about or what do we do? So, so I... I 
I agree with, with, with a great deal of what Adam said. Uh, I do. And, and I also concur with, it, it sounds to me like he and I may be, on, may be on the same page. I don't want to impute views to you, Adam, uh, of kind of American strategic incompetence over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, which seems to be pretty cross-party. I, I think we would have to fight for Taiwan, but I don't think it's a sure thing that we would win. I will explain why I think we have to fight for Taiwan. Two, two big reasons. One is that the Japanese alliance, uh, which is every bit as important as, as Adam says it is, will dissolve if we don't. Taiwan is essential to Japanese security. I don't know that the Japanese would fight for Taiwan without us. If we did fight for Taiwan, they would, they would be our allies uh, in the fight the Japanese would go to war. If we allowed Taiwan to fall, it would do all the things that back in the 60s, uh, you know, there was the allegation that if we let South Vietnam fall, that America's position in the Pacific would collapse. That, that turned out to be false. Vietnam was never the linchpin that it was sold as, but Taiwan is. What's really at stake with, with Taiwan uh, in addition to all the validating elements that a conquest of Taiwan would provide is the verdict in the Pacific of the Second World War vis-a-vis -vis the United States. You know, what we achieved from a strategic perspective by September 1945 was established in the United States as the preeminent power and the hegemon to varying degrees uh, in the Western Pacific. If Taiwan goes, that's over. And so it is a reordering of a regional order and possibly a global order, but definitely a regional order that would be on the level of 1815 Europe or May 1945 in Europe, uh, you know, something on that level. And that kind of thing doesn't happen often, 1989 being the prime exception to this, but it doesn't happen often without, uh, at minimum, bloody regional wars. And the United States is not equipped for that. Uh, you know, our best bet is deterrence, uh, in my view. If, 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 if we end up in a war for Taiwan, you know, I would give us a coin flip's chance of winning. The Seventh Fleet is in bad shape. The Navy in general is in bad shape. We are overcommitted uh, and under-resourced, and the Navy has significant operational issues. If the Seventh Fleet can go for a decade without a major avoidable accident that kills sailors, then I might start to believe that we can do it. But right now, it is a rickety infrastructure. And we've got some reinvestment to do to prepare for what's to come. I think that's that's exactly right. I've written about the Navy lately and the Seventh Fleet in a, in a Singapore publication. And the reason I did it was because the Singaporeans are very complacent. Even after January 6th, a lot of them just don't get it because they don't want to get it because it makes them uncomfortable. It makes them have to think about doing something and they're very risk averse. And they have a very typical sort of Asian consensual way of coming to decisions, which takes for freaking ever. So they don't want to know. They don't want to hear that the Seventh Fleet can't fight. Here's the good news though. And this is the answer I hope to uh, Monique's question. Chinese are not capable right now of invading and occupying Taiwan. They can't do it. They can't do it right uh, now? They can't do it. They're not going to be able to do it for a while. I mean, invading the place, physically putting lots and lots of soldiers on the island, that's hard. But then staying there and occupying the place, you know, Taiwan's not a small island. There are a lot of people there. Would, that would make, you know, the American operation in the Philippines in 1900 look like a tea party. Uh, you know, getting there is hard enough. Staying there and pacifying the place, it would crush the Chinese state trying to do that. It would be really stupid to even try. Now, what they can do, of course, is they can shoot missiles, they can blockade, perhaps they can embargo, they can screw with the, the slocks, they can do all kinds of, of stuff, but we have the answers for those things. They have missiles that uh, are increasingly accurate and formidable. They pose a very serious threat to our ships. And I suspect that if there were a, a sudden war that erupted over an accident somewhere in the South China Sea, Americans would be shocked to learn that our major capital ships uh, in the Seventh Fleet would have to start moving east because they would be vulnerable to those missiles. And this is what this means. It means that if we were going to, to fight them, 
to prevent them from subduing Taiwan in ways less than a physical invasion, we would have to move to CONUS-based air power, some of it based in Missouri, in order to take out coastal but land-based targets in China. Now, what does that mean? It means you're escalating from the maritime sphere onto the terrestrial sphere. That is a very major step up the escalation ladder, and you're getting closer and closer to an exchange of nuclear weapons. So this is a very, very dangerous situation. It's very important, therefore, that the United States, that our posture make it clear that we will fight to protect Taiwan because the consequences geostrategically are exactly what Henry said they were. Those are the consequences. It's end of the game if the Chinese can take Taiwan by force. We have to defend it. The way you do that is to make sure that the Chinese are clear that they don't have a chance to achieve anything political with, with military force that doesn't risk an escalation that is way beyond any rational calculation of their interest. How do we possibly do signal that, given that we're an open society and everyone can peer right into us and sees nothing but fractures and decadence and a complete unwillingness to take any interest in the world at all? It's a problem. Given the way that the United States is right now, conducting a careful diplomacy that emphasize deterrence and resolve and verve. Not easy. It's a challenge. There's an array of things that we can do. It really depends on whether the Seventh Fleet is credible or not. But if you begin, uh, in theory, and I don't know that any of this is on the table right now, but if you begin a reinvestment program, a real reinvestment program, not building littoral combat ships, but you know, actually investing in uh, you know, whatever the successor to the Aegis cruiser uh, looks like, uh, the submarine force has been neglected. That actually is a big, big deal in the Western Pacific. So if you, if you begin that kind of buildup, you begin that kind of reinvestment in the force, that's credible. There are ties that we can create to the Taiwanese. Uh, there are options along those lines. Now, the Chinese would freak out about it, but so be it. There are regional partnerships uh, that you could call upon. The uh, agreement, I think it was uh, it was either this week or last, for the uh, U.S. and Taiwanese Coast Guards to work with each other is a really good step. I would expand that to include uh, the Japanese as well. You know, more aggressive steps against Chinese quasi-maritime militias. Uh, there should be consequences, which haven't been brought to bear yet, for Chinese fishing vessels. Again, and I'll put air quotes around fishing vessels for the benefit of those listening. There are incremental steps that can be taken along those lines. Uh, you know, I would just realize that if, uh, if it comes to a fight over Taiwan, and if it comes to a decision to invade Taiwan, it is because the Zhongnanghai, you know, the, the, the PRC central apparatus has decided that there is an existential question at stake. The, I would take it as a given. I could be wrong about this. I'd be curious what uh, Adam and, and Vivek think about this. Uh, I don't think the regime can survive losing a war over Taiwan. It's effectively all or nothing. I completely agree with both you and Adam on these points. But, you know, coming back to Claire's question on signaling, my question would be to what extent would they understand the kind of signals that the U.S. might want to give at this moment? I'm looking at that from the civilizational perspective, from the psychology of the Chinese politicians rather than anything else. And if that is the case, then there could be an equal amount of misunderstandings on both sides. And if that happens, and we do not understand what's happening within China, what's happening with Xi's position within China, or anyone in the ruling clique out there, then those are the trouble points that might come up, rather than just the possibility of China militarily wanting to invade Taiwan, I don't know, not for the next 10 years. That's a very good question, and it's a very good point. One of the things that concerns me, but maybe Henry knows better, than my knowledge, is that not only has the relationship deteriorated on just about every level, but we don't have 
a private channel of communication. We don't have a third party helping us to communicate with the Chinese that is like a hotline, back hotline. We don't have that. I suggested that we try to create one using the Singaporeans as a mediator. They're perfect for it. They like the idea. They've tried it. But so far, there is there is no reliable back channel to calm everybody down and make sure that perceptions don't get wildly out of control. We need to do that. We need to keep trying. We don't even have a Matthew Pottinger type. I wasn't too fond of the Trump administration in any sense, but at least you had somebody, the NSC, who had some idea, could speak Mandarin, had some idea what was going on. I don't know that we have a comparable individual right now. I mean, Kurt Campbell's around, but I don't know that Kurt's fluent in Chinese. I don't know that he is. But we do need to lower the temperature and protect against accidents and, I don't want to say a bad word, losing their sense of reality. I was always curious about the origins of Chinese language. Ask Gung, uh, Wang Gungwu. And in three or four minutes, he, he managed to explain to me something that had puzzled me for decades. Um, let me just repeat what he taught me, because it's really very relevant to Vivek's concerns. Why is Chinese a pictographic language? I asked Gung Wu. He said, well, because China was a unitary state longer ago than any other state. It had the first sort of Weberian uh, state with a Mandarin system. But China was so diverse in terms of dialect that people would not understand each other if you actually tried to create a phonetic alphabet. So what they did was they created pictographs that had the same meaning but different pronunciations. So that's, uh, you know, somebody in Beijing would not pronounce it the same way that be pronounced in Cantonese or in Hakka or in Hokkien or in Taochu or in Hainanese. It'd have five different pronunciations, but it'd have the same meaning. So if you wanted to communicate, you needed a pictograph and not a phonetic symbol. But think what that means. What it means is that it's a highly written-based system. It's not an oral-based system. When people say in the, in the United States or in Europe, when we use the phrase mother tongue, the Chinese don't know what the hell you're talking about. They don't have a mother tongue. They have a father-written language, right? And the whole idea of everything under heaven, everything organized, no loose ends, this whole idea of, of a rigidly hierarchical system that goes from top down this is reflected in and has been reinforced by the language for the past 5,000 years. Americans don't get this. They don't understand that the very means of communication that people have in China is so radically different from what we're used to. So when, when Americans go to China and they say, well, you know, what about freedom of speech? That's a mother tongue concept, right? It's not a father written language concept. The Chinese don't necessarily disagree when we say free speech is important. They just don't know what the hell we're talking about. China's always had rule by law, but not rule of law. And, and, and one of the reasons is the whole way that the language developed over, a thousand, over more than a couple thousand years. I can't imagine actually two people more likely to misunderstand each other than Americans and Chinese. You are right on the, on the money with the question, the question of the century, as far as I'm concerned. It's a really serious matter. Well, the Europeans and the Chinese aren't understanding each other very well either. I don't know whether you've been following this, but the Chinese basically blew up their very sweet trade deal with the EU. Vivek and I wrote a two-piece article about this, marveling at the ease with which the EU completely surrendered and struck this gigantic trade bargain with China just as the Biden administration was coming into power. Why would they offend the Biden administration by, by closing a deal like this when they could wait? This problem solved itself from the American point of view, because immediately after we sanctioned officials who are directly responsible for the abominations in Shenzhen, Chinese sanctioned everyone in Europe in, ret in return, including 10 think tanks, every politician, everyone in, in 
Europe has been sanctioned now, and their their diplomats are over here calling French researchers and think tanks crazed hyenas. I don't understand why they well, did it. Why did the Chinese take this? Okay, Vivek or or Henry? Go ahead, Henry. Yeah. Uh, well, well, two things. They, they have areas of incompetence just as we do. And so, and so if the Americans and Europeans, uh, you know, habitually blunder their way through their relations, uh, the Chinese are apt uh, to the same thing. Uh, the, the, the other thing, uh, you know, for as much as we've talked about, you know, civilizational differences and things like that, and I, I, I kind of dissent from, from a lot of that. But setting that aside, their foreign politics are like ours, primarily an emanation of their domestic politics. And so if they've got to give up their European audience and their, what would be a fruitful relationship uh, for them uh, in favor of their primary goal, which is solidifying power at home, they're going to do it. I marvel uh, at uh, how they've screwed up their European relations and it delights me as well. But it also appalls me because right now the state of free world versus uh, communist China competition is uh, which side can be least incompetent, and that will determine the winner. And and man, that's that's frightening. <laughs> I wish it was filmed on some other basis. The Cold War was. I mean, we were terrible, but the Soviets were worse. And I'm gl- I'm glad to hear this. I I didn't know that the Chinese were capable of such incompetence. I'm delighted. I wouldn't call that incompetence. Well, it's been I, I have a slightly different view on that. I completely agree with everything that Henry said. But then. It's perhaps a cultural aspect, cultural nuance that the Chinese didn't get in their foreign policy. They couldn't believe that anyone would react the way they did with what they did. Like you're saying that we can't understand the Chinese because of the pictorial language and that 5,000 years of history and they think differently. It's just the same thing that happened, that they just couldn't believe that Europe would react in a certain way. Is that uh, because of the economic ties? And that's the cultural difference that's coming through. Well, it, it's not the economic ties. It's an East versus West. It's a civilizational thing. And it's a completely cultural thing. Because I can see that as an Indian who's been educated in the West. I can see that happening. But I'm not surprised that people in the West wouldn't be able to recognize. Or I'm not surprised that people in the East don't recognize that. There's two things, if I could, and Vivek, I apologize. I spoke over you without intending to. And, and, and it brings in what Adam is talking about in terms of back channels and intermediaries between the US and China, and more broadly, the West and China. Probably two things happening here. One is that the Chinese apparatus is complete political structure. So they don't get it. And so it, it, is, it is reasonable to them and it is rational to them that if think tank X is criticizing them, um, that it has done so at the behest of the ruling coalition uh, within that particular government. And you extend that to media, you extend that to corporations and so on. And so there, there just isn't an ability to understand. And, and, and this is matched by our own intellectual capacities at understanding you know, the nature of, uh, of, of other states. This idea that the communist world was monolithic and that everything was planned. Uh, and so it took us to the 1970s to suddenly realize that there was a diversity of, of, of opinion and views uh, within, within certain bounds there. So just imagine if we'd figured that out in the late 40s. Well, the Chinese have a similar incapacity in understanding us. The other thing, you know, Adam, there's a good book. I'm not, I'm not through it yet, but uh, Josh Rogan has a good book called uh, Chaos Under Heaven that traces out uh, U.S.-China relations under the Trump administration, which is really, really interesting. Because one thing that it really makes clear is that our intermediaries post-1989 ended up being largely Wall Street in the business community. And, and that really put an unfortunate skew on our grasp of, uh, again, of Chinese decision-making and perspectives because it was mediated through that. Rogan's book does a really good job of illuminating how that 
distorted policy uh, in some in some serious ways. One thing that I will definitely applaud the Biden people for is they they seem to not be. I mean, who knows what's going on behind the scenes? Uh, but they seem to not be falling into the same trap. Uh, I know the Anchorage talks were panned on a lot of levels, especially on the right, uh, for for reasons that I understand. But I was heartened at least to see that you know, Secretary of State Blinken at least doesn't seem eager to walk into the bear trap. I agree completely with that. The the whole Wall Street part of this has been catastrophic. The single most important factor that delayed the reperception of China in the American mind, it delayed us coming to terms with Xi Jinping's reality for almost a half a dozen years. It was catastrophic. Totally agree. It's, it's very funny. Michael Green is a friend of mine. He has a book called Not by Providence Alone, which as far as I know is the only recent book on the history of US diplomacy in Asia. It's a hernia. It's really a big book, but it's worth it. But one of the things he traces in the book is the rise and fall of economic nationalism toward Asia in American policymaking. Back in the Bush, Bush 41 administration, uh, these things kind of, they, they, it's like a sine wave that comes through. So we've had a huge one lately with this pulse of globalization and the desire of guys on Wall Street to make money at everybody else's expense. I would rather not use intermediaries. I would rather use friends and allies of the United States who have access. You can't do it through Hong Kong anymore because that's that's over. Singapore is the only Chinese majority country in the world that's not actually physically part of China. There are more bilingual, really, really fluent bilingual uh, Mandarin English speakers in, in Singapore, in this little island, than there are any place else in the world. We, we can't do this by ourselves. We don't have the sensitivity to history or culture. We don't have the, the, the language speakers in, in sufficient quantity and fluency that we need. We can't do this by ourselves is really what it comes down to. What should we be doing right now about the colonization of Djibouti or turning Djibouti into a military base? If there were a lot of people in Djibouti, it would matter, but there aren't. I mean, or look at the island of Socotra. That would be even more useful for the Chinese. They're building out their navy. And it is a problem because you have to understand that this is all cat and mouse kind of stuff. Chinese create capabilities, it doesn't mean, you have to think of those not in terms of just a fight, but you have to think in terms, in terms of what you have to do to prepare to balance off against their new deployments. And the, you know, the, the, is larger than the US Navy. They have more ships than we do, okay? And we really are in a bind. Let's go back to something that Henry said earlier. We really are in a bind. We do need to recapitalize the Navy. And what is so shocking to me, when I think back about it, in the, in the post-911 period, we doubled the defense budget in real terms. And what did we do with all of that money? We spent it on fighting uh, not very well thought out land wars in Asia. But the grand strategy of the United States, our forward deployment twin anti-hegemonism strategy, which we've had forward deployed since the end of the Second World War, depends primarily on the Navy and the Air Force as our vehicles to anti-end to play in the, the regional geopolitics of Asia and Europe so as to prevent the rise of a hegemon. And what do we do? We spent all the money on the army and the Marines and we didn't recapitalize the key elements of our grand strategy. How dumb do you have to be, right? So I agree completely with Henry that, that our strategic acumen in recent administrations has been pretty poor. But the problem is this, Navy's problem right now, the Seventh Fleet's problem right now is readiness and seamanship and morale. You have the Fat Leonard scandal. You have in 2017, two ships running into uh, other ships and, and Navy guys being killed. When the Mason was attacked off the coast of Duvain in 2016, there were weapon systems and, and items on that, those ships that were not functional because they were not maintenanced and because they were not trained personnel on board that knew how to, how to run them. Missiles are, are being shot at the ship. It has defensive systems that can't be used for lack of readiness and training and maintenance. But the, what the brass have been doing in the Navy for years is they've been, they've been robbing uh, the readiness accounts in order to go after procurement because they're competing with the other services for acquisition money. 
So while I agree, I agree with you, Henry, we need to recapitalize and we need a wise acquisition strategy that plays directly at odds with re the readiness accounts. And we're not going to get a big bump up in the budget for the Navy to allow us to do both. So it's a real dilemma. Yeah, no, no, you're, no, you're totally, you're a thousand percent uh, correct. I could not agree more with the the fiscal bind. It's probably a whole different podcast and how defense acquisition has has basically eaten the Pentagon without increasing American readiness to defend our interests. Uh, there's a horrible recruitment crisis underway right now uh, that's affecting all the armed forces. We're almost Austro-Hungarian uh, in some ways uh, in our in our, our our being wedded to a sclerotic military establishment that uh, that may well underperform dramatically. Yes, and I also think we are tremendously ill-equipped for the kind of information wars that are coming our way. I mean, Russia pioneered this, obviously, but everyone has seen how effective it is. And just yesterday, in fact, French Le Monde exposed an entire French journalist who has been reporting from Xinjiang, who very, very pedigreed. She has a master's degree from the Sorbonne. She's been living there for seven years because she has relatives there. This person didn't exist. They, they combed through every record and found Chinese had simply invented her. And although the Chinese do not seem to be as skillful as Russia yet, given the obvious cost-benefit calculus, anyone looking at open societies must realize this is, this is where to go. I, I don't think we've really put any real thought yet into the kind of information war that we're going to face, that we are facing. Vivek? The information war for the Chinese is not going to be so easy because of exactly the same situation that it has in dealing with the pluralistic society. Everything inside China is controlled. There's no Google there. You've got Baidu. And because, because the Chinese would look at it that way, they may not have or may not be able to develop the kind of skills that the Russians did in order to be able to stage that kind of a war, which is what you're seeing today. And that's going to take some time. If China's got to pick that up, they've got to understand the civilizational, cultural nuances. And that's not going to be easy. Two brief comments. A lot of Chinese students have been educated on the graduate level in the United States. And I think you're right about the culture in general, but I think the very narrow niche of experts that you would need to do information warfare from the Chinese point of view, I think there, there are plenty of people who know enough about the West and the United States to be able to do that. You only need a relatively small cadre of experts to, to do something like that. This other thing that actually is some good news, really, uh, it seems to me that you really can't talk about this very much in public, but we do have a cyber command. We actually have some pretty good capabilities. What The strategy, though, has been, it's a little like in the war against the, the internet, the war against terror. There's some people in the U.S. government who would like to shut down and actively defend against attacks, but there are others who would like to just kind of let it ride, uh, collect the intelligence, not give away what our capabilities might be prematurely, and I would say for the past couple of years, it's the, the second group has sort of gotten their way. The Russian stuff lately has been pretty severe, though. And I think there's more, there's a consensus growing that they need to be slapped hard. But I wouldn't underestimate our capabilities in terms of offensive cyber, cyber war. I think we're actually pretty good at that. We just have been holding our punches because we don't want to give away our shit too soon. Coventry. I think that's what's going what was that, Coventry on. 1940? Yeah, yeah. I think that was it. I think it was Coventry too. No, 1940. Henry, you want to, uh, we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon. Would you like to make a comment? Thank you all for being so gracious and having me on and also allowing me to adopt a preposterous uh, pseudonym. Always grateful for that. Adam, Vivek, Claire, Monique, uh, thank you.
one, one thing I want to say in, in, in walking away is that uh, although uh, you know, I do believe, probably manifest by now, that the Communist Party of China is a standing threat to the United States, to a peaceful world order, to liberty as we understand it, it is entirely possible for China and the Chinese nation, uh, however constituted, to be a productive and friendly and flourishing participant in the family of nations. And uh, you know, I think the example of the Chinese diaspora, which includes my own sons, uh, is uh, illumination of that. You know, I'll, I'll close on a happy note now, but the United States and China through a lot of the 20th century had very close fraternal ties. It's kind of a, um, it's almost a cliche for those in the Chinese policy community to learn that the, that the work for the United States uh, in Putanghua and in, in Mandarin is uh, Meguo. It's, it's the beautiful country. Uh, some of that is just phonetics, May in America, but, uh, but some of it is, is real sentiment rooted in a lot of the Chinese, particularly Cantonese immigrant experience in the United States. And what was found, as with so many other groups, uh, when they arrived in the Western Hemisphere uh, across the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, and we can have that relationship again. Ultimately, uh, I would posit that the model for a successful Sino-American relationship, once the Chinese Communist Party and the threat that it represents is over, is really rooted in uh, the return of the boxer indemnity. Those uh, listening who, who don't know, in uh, really shortening this, but uh, in 1900, the United States participated in a multinational alliance uh, that uh, effectively campaigned from Tianjin to um, uh, Beijing, uh, subdued uh, what was misnamed the Boxer Rebellion. And as part of the settlement of that very short and violent conflict, the United States, along with the other nations, received an indemnity from what was, the, the, uh, what was then the Qing Empire. The United States alone uh, took the indemnity and uh, created, movingly to my mind, a scholarship fund for Chinese students uh, to come study in the United States. And the, the generation of goodwill from that, coupled with the Second World War experience, where uh, you know, America was an essential help to uh, what was then Guomindong, China, I think in the long run, uh, and my hope and prayer is that, is that that ultimately characterizes the state of U.S.-China relations. Neither nation's going away. We need each other. Uh, and candidly, the future of a um, peaceful humanity depends upon it. So thank you again. Thank you very much for coming and joining us. And I'm very glad you added that because I felt that mm. Adam's historiography of American relationship with China was a bit, a bit short on those points. It's, it's very important to stress that we were not imperialist, rapacious powers well, like uh, I, I would say uh, my, my addition is an and and not a but, uh, to Adam's. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Henry. Your sons. Will do.